This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-wy-giving. Matthew chapter 11. We finally finished up chapter 10 last week. And we're going to jump into chapter 11 tonight. Now, it goes on into a different area of Scripture. Not quite the same kind of sparse areas that we were in some weeks back. But we found, what did we discover when we were in the sparse areas as far as sparse in terms of actual teachings? What little there was in those thinner areas, if you will, what little there was had a lot of real potent teaching in it. And we may come across that again here in the chapters or in, in this same area of Scripture here. Let's begin in verse 1. He says, And it came to pass when Jesus made an end of commanding His twelve disciples, He departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard, this is John Baptist he's talking about, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? So what exactly was going on here? Well, we know, what John, we know who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus our Savior. He was the forerunner. He was he that should be sent ahead to pave the way in the hearts of the Jews to receive Messiah at his coming, or at least in so far as, as they would receive him. But John the Baptist, standing up for what was right, ran afoul of the authorities because the, he had the audacity to stand up to Herod and say, hey, it's not lawful for you to be messing around in this adulterous relationship that you're in. And sometimes when you speak truth, brethren, it's going to blow back in your face. Sometimes when you stand up for what's right, sometimes when you criticize those that are engaged in evil of one kind or another, it can blow up on you. Well, does that mean that we shouldn't say anything? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Because if you'll remember, Jesus was just teaching in the one or two chapters prior to this. Chapter 10, verse 27. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the rooftops. Well, that's what John the Baptist did. And when you do that towards people in power, it can really buy you some trouble. So once again, does that mean that we shouldn't do it? No, that's, not, that's, that's the wrong lesson to learn. But even so, you learn wisdom. You don't just run up into City Hall or over into the Capitol building and start decrying the corruption of all of the local politicians. Because that'll get you thrown in jail, but not because, you know, you're, not because you're standing up for the right, but because you're being you know, disorderly and you're causing problems. You know? use, some, use some wisdom. Use some wisdom. But John the Baptist had spoken openly about the governor, if you will, about his, about his adulterous affair that he was in. And that adulterous governor didn't much like that, so he had him thrown in jail. So from prison, John was now hearing of the things that Jesus was doing and, uh, and of the fame that was spreading abroad. Not fame for fame's sake, but fame for the work's sake. And so he dispatched two of his disciples to go to Jesus and ask Him point blank, 
Are you the Messiah? Are you he who we are looking for and have been waiting for for all this time? Or do we seek for another? Because he trusted that Jesus would be honest about it. And so we read in the next few verses exactly how that went. They said, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto him, said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And I know we preached out of this recently, but we're teaching out of it tonight. He said, the blind receive their sight. What Jesus, he affirmed his identity by pointing to his works as evidence of who he was. He didn't just answer John's disciples and say, um, yes, I'm him. Now you can go back and tell him. And he did something a little bit more definitive than that. Because anybody can say Yes. He pointed to his works. He said, the blind receive their sight. That sort of thing hadn't been going on before. The lame walk. That sort of thing hadn't been happening before. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. Now, there had been examples of these things happening in the past. Hit and miss. Few and far between. But never before had anyone in the whole history of Israel, or the world for that matter, had anyone strode onto the scene doing all of these. You know what I'm saying? You go back and you read in the Old Testament of certain of the prophets that lived in days gone by. And they might have miraculously, by the power of God, raised someone up from the dead. So that had happened before. People had received their sight. It's reasonable uh, to presume. Lepers had been cleansed miraculously. We know that from a fact. I'm for a fact, I'm thinking of the, of the Syrian commander that had come to the prophet in those days. Uh, Naaman, I think his name was, had come to one of the prophets and the prophet had told him go wash seven times in the Jordan and you'll receive uh, and you'll be healed and he went and did that but at no point in their history had anyone coming on had anyone come on the scene doing all of these and Jesus did it all he did it all he was like the full package right there blind okay now you can see deaf no problem now you can heal leper that doesn't have to be a death sentence for you buddy you are cleansed uh, oh, oh, and this person has died. No big deal. It's one reason why Christians really don't need to fuss a whole lot about funerals. Well, we want to have a Christian funeral. Well, what's a Christian funeral? Jesus never did a funeral not one time. He disrupted them. He walked in and blew the whole event up by raising the dead person up to life again. So we don't really have an example in Scripture for a Christian funeral. I mean, you could have a Christian-themed one, but I don't see really where one... What is a biblical funeral? You just dig a hole, put them in the ground, you commit them to the earth. I mean, what about cremation? Is, it, is, that, is that biblical or unbiblical? Well, it's neither one. The Bible doesn't give us a prescribed way to dispose of our dead. And I really think that there's reasons for that. Because once a person has passed away, that's it. They're done. They're gone. The body is nothing more than an empty vessel. And that doesn't mean that we should deliberately disrespect it. In fact, God takes exception to the deliberate, intentional disrespect of a corpse. You read that again back in the Old Testament. 
where you had some people that were seeking to do deliberate damage to, a, I think was it a prophet that had passed away, a particularly un, unpopular one, and they dug up his bones and burned him. Well, God judged those men for that because it was the intent of the heart. But there's nothing in the Bible that really prescribes the way that we should um, intern, inter our dead. So it doesn't really matter. Whatsoever thy conscience telleth you to do, well, that's what you want to go with, I guess. But Jesus had come on the scene doing all of these, cleansing lepers, healing the lame, giving sight back to the blind, hearing back to the deaf. He gave speech to those who were mute, and he raised the dead. And then, but there's this last one here that seems a little bit out of place. So, you take it in order. He said the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised. But then he said this one. The poor have the gospel preached to them. What's up with that one? That's that's in a a category by itself from all these others in this list. All the others had to do with healing physical defects and even reversing death itself. And then he tags this one on at the very end. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Note that the most valuable of these evidences is the last one on the list. So why is it the most valuable? I'd think that sight to the blind or, or being raised from the dead would be the most valuable of all of them. Well, no. No, not necessarily. Because even those that were raised from the dead were going to die again, weren't they? Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. The Bible calls him the firstborn from the dead, meaning the first who was ever raised from the dead unto eternal life, never having to die again. Everyone that was ever raised from the dead in the Old Testament or in the Gospels, they were all going to meet death again one day, either by violence or old age or natural causes of one kind or another. Lazarus, I know we, we know he raised Lazarus from the dead, but there were others, the, the daughter of the, of, the, of the Gentile ruler. But ultimately, they would go to the grave again. They tasted the dust of death again. But the greatest of these evidences was that those who have little or nothing in this life and can't afford to buy hardly anything at all, they were having the most valuable thing in the universe given to them free of charge. Now that ought to make any socialists in here feel good. I don't think we have any socialists in here. If you are, I pray that the Lord change your thinking. Jesus was not a socialist. I know he said... I know he said to share and things like that, but that isn't socialism. Socialism is mandated. They take it from you by force and give it to somebody who doesn't even do anything but just lays around all day. But the most valuable evidence was that those that have little or nothing and couldn't afford to buy hardly anything would have that which was the pearl of great price, if you will, that which was most valuable in all the world, in all creation, given to them without cost. That's the gospel, the gospel, the good news that you can be born again. And even if it was the gospel of the kingdom that it was referring to, that was still wonderful news that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. This really is tremendous grace. It really is tremendous grace. And you see that also It shows you that God isn't interested in just those who have something to give to Him. He isn't just interested in those who earn the most and therefore can pay the biggest tithe. 
or those who earn the most and can give the biggest offering. That it shows that the character of God isn't just interested in those who are well-to-do in society. He said the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Free of charge, no cover charge, no fees involved at all. It just involved them being there and receiving the gospel message. That never occurred to me before preparing to this. This really, that's, that's a big deal. But then there's this sixth verse that comes in even after this, this last line in the fifth verse. The sixth verse comes in seemingly out of place. It's a little bit enigmatic. He says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. What's he mean here? What's he mean here? All right, well, let's go back to what he was saying because it's all in the same paragraph. And a paragraph represents a, a complete thought, right? You don't, you don't read sentence by sentence. You read and, and understand paragraph by paragraph. It's thought by thought. And so Jesus says, Go and show John again the things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Well, where's he coming from here? Why did he feel it necessary to tack that on there? Well, because not everyone who hears of Jesus likes it. And not, not everyone who, who hears of Jesus likes Jesus. You know what I mean? They, they don't, they're not all interested in hearing the gospel. They're certainly not all interested in, in, in hearing that they need to change. And that ties in kind of the psychology of it. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Did you like hearing it? Especially if you thought you were right when you were dead certain, I'm a good moral person, I'm good enough, I'm okay, and then you went through your usual uh, mental battery of offenses you don't commit as your justification for being good enough for the kingdom. I'm not a murderer, I don't mess with kids, I don't punch women, I don't slap nuns, I don't rob banks, I don't tug on Superman's cape, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah, and, and so therefore, I'm good enough. And then someone comes along with the gospel saying, well, you know, actually, Jesus says that except you be born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? How dare you say that to me? How dare you tell me that I'm not good enough or that I'm possibly wrong? Whoa, 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 whoa. And that's weird, isn't it? That's weird how, how that works because... I think I've articulated it like this in the past. You know, sick person dying from cancer, body, body just riddled with tumors, okay? Goes to see physician. Physician says, you have cancer, you're dying. But here's the cure, okay? And the patient then goes, yay, a cure, I'll take it. But sinner, life completely riddled with sin, destroying their soul, destroying their life by inches, on their way to a Christless eternity and something far worse than death by cancer. Minister or Christian or anybody at all with access to the truth tells them, hey, you're a sinner and you're on your way to hell. Here's the gospel. It's the good news, not the bad news. It's the good news. That's what gospel means. You can be born again and forgiven of everything you ever did wrong. How dare you judge me? You're judging me. It's, it, it's incongruous, isn't it? You know, we'll, we'll accept a verdict, we'll accept a, a diagnosis or a prognosis from a physician, but we don't want to hear a spiritual diagnosis of our condition from somebody 
who has the answer to our problem. But he says, blessed is he, blessed or happy is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. With the mention of Christ comes the expectations of a changed life. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why people get so bent out of shape. I don't know if you know much about addiction psychology, okay? I don't have notes on this, but addiction psychology, I've heard it described like this when it was talking about an alcoholic. Alcoholics build defenses like the Dutch build dikes. You know what I mean? I don't mean wire cutters or lesbian women with short hair. I mean dikes, those great big barriers that hold back the seawall from flooding your land. Those are called dikes, original meaning of the word, okay? He said, alcoholics build defenses like the Dutch build dikes. They'd build justifications. And that's the same thing across the board with just about any kind of an addiction. It is the nature of an addiction to hijack your logic and your reasoning. It's the nature of an addiction to hijack the way that you think to get you to formulate justifications to defend your addiction because that's what addiction does. And that's why addicts can be so charming and talk their way out of changing and things like that. That's why they bargain and things like that. Sin does the same thing in the life of a person. It's not like a chemical dependency. It really is very much like a spiritual addiction. And so any mention, any mention of something that shines a light on the true spiritual condition of someone who is lost in the eyes of God is going to inflame the defense mechanisms that come along with sin. Anything at all to defend the sin. I'm good enough. You're judging me. You don't have a right to tell me. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Oh, and they love to quote Scripture because they think that that'll just shut the believer up in a flat second, okay? Even though we're not judging, we're just saying, look, man, you got a, you got a problem. Like that fellow I was talking to recently who kept... Uh, he kept saying, I'm a good Catholic, I'm a good Catholic, I'm a good Catholic. I'm, I'm no angel, but I'm a good Catholic. You know, I'm, I'm no angel. He kept saying it over and over again. I'm no angel, I'm a good Catholic. And, and the state that he was in at that moment was one of he was not in his right mind. He'd been deep in the bottle for a while, and it was evident, like it is with many people. And all I was doing was talking with him. Lives two doors down from him. Just talking with him. I wasn't getting on his case about anything, but he kept saying these defenses and justifications. And so I finally just asked him, I said, how's that working for you? I'm a good Catholic. I said, okay, how's that working for you? Life is in a shambles. Absolutely, absolutely everything except maybe his job. I think his job was the only thing that wasn't just about coming to pieces down around his ears in his life. Everything else was, from marriage to you name it, it was just coming apart at the seams. And so I just asked him, now I wasn't being mean and I wasn't being judgmental. I was trying to help him see and look with some clear and objective eyes at the condition of his own person and his own life, marriage and everything else. How's that working for you? They don't want to hear that. Some do. Some have gotten to a place in their life where they are receptive to it, but it can take a lot. The mention of Christ brings expectations of a changed life and the resulting changed behavior, and that offends many. That's why Jesus says, Blessed or happy is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. 
Why be offended at the name of Jesus? And I know I'm preaching to the choir here talking about this. If you were offended at the name of Jesus, you probably wouldn't be here tonight. But it's good to understand why there are many that are. Walk up to a stranger and just say, hey, what do you know about Jesus? And half a dozen defenses get triggered just like that. There's reasons for it. Having spoken to the disciples of John and sending them back to report to John and reassure him and comfort his heart that yes, this is in fact Messiah. Messiah has come and things are well on their way. And this was real exciting stuff. This was big, big news. So after they departed, verse 7, he goes on, he says, as they departed, or the narrative says, as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitude concerning John, what went ye out, to, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went, what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom is it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Now let me stop there and back up a bit. He asked them. This is where Jesus was backing John up. Okay, John had sent his disciples out to Jesus to question him. Not challenge, but just to inquire, to find out. And Jesus answered John's disciples, sent his disciples back, and now he was turning his attention to the multitude that was round about that had witnessed the exchange. And he said, so when John was coming preaching to you guys, what did you, go, what did you guys go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? In other words, did you go out to see a show? Or did you go out to actually get something from God? Did you go out to really receive something from the Lord? This is a penetrating question into the motives of people who go to religious gatherings. Now back then, it was them coming out of the cities to go see John preaching and baptizing in the wilderness. In the modern day, it's people coming to churches. Why do we come to church? That's what you can distill these three questions down to. Why did you go to church? He was asking the multitude. Why did you go to church? Was it to see a reed shaken with the wind? Did you go to see a show? Did you go to hear the entertainment? To listen to the, to the band and the stupid flashing lights and the smoke machines and the gold dust? They are like living indictments to themselves, aren't they? These groups that do things that really don't edify, they really... They really don't add anything to the gospel. It's like a beautiful, solid gold statue and you want to make it prettier so you wrap Christmas lights around it. How does that work? How are you going to make, or something better than that, because gold is still something that's fashioned by man. Okay, all right, let's use a better metaphor. Um, if you, I don't know if anyone been to Colorado Springs? Have you ever seen any of the tourist attractions outside of the springs, but in that area, like Seven Falls? 
or uh, the Royal Gorge or something like that. Let me, let me pick the most awe-inspiring of them in my own experience. Royal Gorge, great big huge gorge in the ground, a massive chasm that had a river running along down the bottom of it and a railroad track alongside of that. And there was a gift shop there. Follow along, we're going somewhere with this, okay? This isn't random. And you go into the gift shop, walk through it, go out the back end to this huge observation. I remember it being huge. I was a young teenager at the time, so it might have actually been quite a bit smaller. But I remember it being big. And there's a great big observation deck out there. And you step out onto that deck and you walk right up to the edge. And the deck, if I remember right, goes out over the edge of the gorge. And you look out over that gorge, and it's massive. It, there's so much there for the eye to try to take in. Just the sight of that, the huge expanse of the opposite side of that gorge. It was so much that it actually hurt my eyes. I could not take it all in, and I couldn't keep looking at it. And this was just a work of nature, okay? This wasn't anything divine at all. This wasn't something sent down or revealed from heaven. This wasn't an angelic vision or a divine vision sent from the Most High. It was just a natural feature of the landscape. It was too much for my eyes to take in. So now you've got some guys that are operating the gift shop, say they want to make it prettier. So they go string Christmas lights all around the edge of the gorge. Has that really added anything? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like putting spinners on a Bentley. It actually cheapens it. Why do you go to church? To see a show? And then he says, well, what, for, what went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Someone favorable to the eyes like a, a showman? An entertainer? Ooh, a motivational speaker? Don't you know they're a dime a dozen? Have you ever looked at any of those self-help books that, uh, that they have? Uh, well, Kinko's is long gone. What are they now? FedEx office or something like that? It's a FedEx office. You ever go in there to make, well, you almost don't need them anymore to make copies or prints or do something along those lines, get a banner or something like that. If you go in there and while you're waiting to, to check out or to ask a question, they have these... They have these stands with business books in them and they're all like 12 strategies of winning leaders and, and it's all the same rehashed tripe over and over again. And these are books that have been written three dozen times in the last 20 years. They, they just get, it's all the same pulp. Motivational speakers, are, are, they're like the living embodiment of these things. All they do is motivate. You can't get, you can't get a better motivational speaker than Jesus himself. There's no better, not to reduce him to that level, okay? He was far more and is far more than that. But he was asking these people that question. Did you go out to see somebody wearing nice clothes? He said, behold, those that wear nice clothes, soft raiment, those guys live in king's houses. Those are courtiers. Those are politicians. Those aren't really worth your time. Why did you go to church? To see a prophet? That's what he asked in verse 9. What went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. This was God the Father speaking to God the Son. I send, thy messenger, I send my messenger before your face, Jesus, who will prepare your way before you. This was a prophecy 
that John fulfilled and Jesus was reminding them of. He reveals that the advent of John the Baptist was foretold by the prophet Malachi over in Malachi chapter 3. And if you go back to Malachi, he's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. If you go back to Malachi chapter 3 and you read it, it says this same thing. I will send your messenger before your face, or I'll send my messenger before your face to prepare the way before you. He was confirming John the Baptist's identity, and it even goes deeper than this. Notwithstanding, he says, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Verse 14, and if ye will receive it, he's telling the people this, if ye will receive it, this is Elias. Now Elias was a different language for the name Elijah. This is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. This was the return, not of the prophet in body, because Elijah has not yet died. And that rabbit hole goes a little bit deeper, and we'll dig into that more next week, because it's going to take too much time right now. But he was telling them, John the Baptist was prophesied of back in Malachi chapter 3. This is he that should come before me. He's validating the identity of John the Baptist because the identity of John the Baptist, the, the advent of John the Baptist, validates and confirms who Jesus is in the eyes of the people. And they needed to know that. Be at the will of the Lord. We'll pick it up next week and we'll go deeper into that prophecy because that's heavy-duty stuff that he was talking about. Because then we've got to jump over into the Old Testament and talk about how Elijah never died. The chariot carried him up. He's going to come back again. So we're going to tie like three different parts of Scripture together next week and it's going to be really cool. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash giving